Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, July 15th, we are studying Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. The cycle restarts. Does that sound familiar? After a time of rest from Deborah and Barak, Israel again rebels against the Lord by their idolatry. When the Lord gives them into the hand of Midian, they cry out for help, and he calls Gideon to deliver Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor James Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, thank you. It's good to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Preuss, just give us some context in the book of Judges. This is a new cycle as we've seen it repeat itself a couple times already. What do we need to know going into this text that introduces Gideon to us? Well, uh, as you mentioned, it's a cycle. So the last time when you finished off with Deborah, the land had rest for 40 years. Uh, The rest would mean that they have a a God-fearing government. Uh, The people are actually worshiping the Lord. Uh, They aren't devoting themselves to false gods. And it also means a rest from their oppressors. So the nations that they have not finished driving out aren't oppressing them. But of course, as we know, they always fall away. Uh, They start worshiping the false gods of the nations around them, and then God uh, disciplines them. He turns his his back on them and does not give them success from their enemies, and the nations around them overwhelm them. And uh, the more you you read it, like maybe the first time you read through Judges, the first time you read through the Old Testament, you just kind of get all these names and they're all kind of just the same for you. And in Sunday school, you probably just learn, oh, the Canaanites, or uh, you, you recognize the Philistines because, you know, Saul and, and David were always fighting the Philistines. But there are also a number of, of nations, some that we know a lot about, some we know very little about. And in this particular situation, it's the Midianites and the uh, Amalekites. And uh, they are. it said that they are both from the east, so these are wilderness, the kind of bordering on the desert, and uh, and the Midianites, that would that might sound familiar, uh, because Moses married the daughter of a Midianite priest when he fled Egypt uh, before he came back, when he fled after he killed an Egyptian, and he went out and he became a shepherd uh, for, in, in Midian. So this is, uh, again, another ancient civilization. They worship different gods, and God used them to punish his people Israel. Mm. So let's see how that happens yet again here in Judges chapter 6. We're beginning at verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. 
they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. We'll pause there. That was Judges 6, verses 1 through 10. So, Pastor Price, we get very familiar words there at the beginning of the chapter. The Lord, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and as you were saying in, in your introduction, when it came to the matter of what the rest was, that it was a godly government, it was true worship, and it was rest from oppression. When we see the people of Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord, we should think of the opposite of those things, particularly that matter of true worship. This evil that they're doing in the sight of the Lord isn't simply immoral living, as bad as that is. This is idolatry that they've fallen into yet again. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's really the, the center of it. Uh, I mean, the sexual immorality and the abuse of, of, the, uh, of the downtrodden, the weak, and the fatherless, and, and orphaned, etc., uh, that all comes out of worshiping a, a false god. And we learn about these gods. I mean, these gods are cruel. Um, one, they aren't real gods, so they have mouths that, that, that cannot speak and ears that cannot hear and eyes that cannot see, and those who uh, worship them become like them. Uh, but those who worship, uh, part of becoming like them is to become heartless and to become cruel. I mean, these gods uh, demand the child sacrifice and, and things like that. But yeah, they, it, it comes down to not trusting the Lord, and they see the, the success of their neighbors, and they start coveting what they have, uh, God makes God God tests them, and uh, they fail the test. They become impatient, and they think, "Well, these people are succeeding, so their God must be better." Or maybe this is this is the way it works. Uh, if I if I worship this God, I'll have better crops or more success. I'll have you know more sons or whatever it is that they they desire. And also, it's just a lack of of knowledge of the Word of God. Uh, they're not. They're not worshiping right. Uh, I was reading in First Samuel this morning, and uh, it, I read about how Saul, he, he set up a, a stone for a sacrifice. And so this was the first altar that Saul put up. And it just shows, like, like what's Saul doing setting up these, these altars? Which shows he, he just doesn't know what's, what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, he... And you see this throughout Judges, too. You, you have these, these guys, these men of God, even, and they just don't know, they don't know what they're doing. Um, so so you, they, uh, they, set up, they, they set up false worship. Uh, they, they sacrifice when they're not authorized to, to sacrifice. Um, you have the, uh, the, uh, 
the, the tragic vow. Um, who, what's his name? It starts with the with the J. The, the man who had the, the tragic vow. He says, "Well, I'm gonna, uh, yeah, Japheth, uh, Japheth, um, or Jephthah, Jephthah." He has this tragic vow, and this is, com- comes up in a few chapters where he says, "Oh, well, I'm going to uh, sacrifice whatever the first thing that that comes home and greets me." He's thinking he's going to sacrifice some animal to the Lord. Well, it ends up being his daughter. But then at the end, of it, he, he sacrifices his daughter, or at least that it strongly implies that he sacrifices his daughter. Well, if you, if you read through Leviticus, you, you see that God does not want him to sacrifice his daughter. When you make a, a vow like this, you, he, he should have, have had a, a guilt offering. So it would have been required, I think, for a, uh, for a, a leader of the people, then he would have had to sacrifice, uh, who, who breaks one of the uh, Levitical laws concerning holy things, he should have sacrificed the male goat. And then he should have, uh, he said he was going to sacrifice a whole burnt offering. Well, he should have sacrificed a whole burnt offering uh, of an animal to replace his daughter. And uh, there was a price, I think it's like something like 30 shekels or something like that. Maybe it was 10 shekels uh, for his daughter, depending on her, her age. Uh, and like reading this, having read through uh, the Pentateuch, and then reading this and just thinking, why on earth would he think that he had to sacrifice mm-hmm. his daughter? Well, it's because he, he doesn't know. I mean, they have the law, but nobody's listening to it. Nobody's worshiping. They're not gathering when they're supposed to. They hear the, the priest, and they don't pay attention to what he's saying. Uh, it's very much the problem that we have in the, the Church today. Uh, your typical Lutheran, uh, let, I mean, let alone Christian, let alone Lutheran, doesn't know basic Christian doctrine. And uh, they get into huge messes. And they don't know how to get in, out of the mess, and they—I mean, it's, it's the blind leading the blind. Uh, so I think that's the, the the problem that we have right here. These people are worshiping false gods. They do things that sound religious, but they really have no idea what they're doing. Mm. And I really wouldn't be surprised if there if there were a lot of people there who didn't even know that they weren't supposed to worship other gods. That they just simply thought, oh, the Lord is our God, but other people have gods too. I mean, it's not to make an excuse for them, it's an indictment, but it's just incredible ignorance. They just don't know uh, the, the, the basics of their, of their faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, God threatens to punish them for this. This is what he said. He promised that he was going to clear the land for them, he was going to drive out nations before them, uh, but then he does say, he, he mentions a number of times, uh, you know, Milo, read really just a little bit from Leviticus chapter 26. He, this is what he says if they don't uh, follow his commands. But if, uh, this is uh, Leviticus 26, beginning at verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you will spurn my statutes, uh, statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down by your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Uh, and if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Mm-hmm. And he just goes on and on and on like this. Uh, and 
this this punishment is visited upon them several times because, as you've already mentioned, several times they turn turn away. Um, and then also you, you see the the mention of the locusts, the uh, locusts coming, and you can see some connections here with the plagues that God sent down to Egypt. So they forget the God of Israel, uh, who showed his salvation to them by rescuing the, rescuing them from Egypt with these mighty plagues. And you see a lot of the parallels of those plagues being put on them. The plagues of Egypt, you had the locusts who came and ate everything. Uh, you had the livestock being killed and dying. Uh, you had uh, uh, all these plagues down on the Egyptians, and now these very same plights are being laid upon the people of Israel who have forgotten the God who sent these plagues uh, mm. for them. Mm. Uh, as you were as you were talking there, Pastor Preuss, it, it just it strikes me as as we read a text like this, uh, we we do tend to focus on the physical oppression that was happening to the people of Israel. On, on account of Midian. And certainly it was it was terrible. I mean, we don't want to minimize that by any means, that, that these awful things were happening to the Israelites physically. But we sometimes I think we, we focus on that so much that we, we do forget the real spiritual plight that they found themselves in. I think you painted it very well. The book of Judges does paint that picture for us. And it's it's just downright ugly, even in those parts where maybe we're not exactly sure what's going on in a person's head. We, we talked a little bit about this with uh, JL, the, the woman who kills Sisera, and why does she do this? What's going on? And the text doesn't say specifically, but the overall picture of the book of Judges is that, as you said, no one really seems to know what's going on. Even even the best people, you know, as we'll see with Gideon in a bit, they they seem quite clueless. Jephthah, the example you you cited, you know, I mean, he's going to be one of the judges. He gets mentioned in Hebrews chapter eleven, the the chapter of those who who lived by faith, and yet he too has this just great ignorance when it comes to the worship life. So I think it's just a, it's a good reminder to see that as we see the terrible effects that their sin was having on them in the civil aspect and in the physical aspect of their lives, all of that stems from their great ignorance, their great disobedience and rebellion and idolatry when it came to the spiritual life that was during this time of Israel. I've, I've said it this way, and it's, it's maybe an understatement, that this is no golden age for the people of Israel. It's just, it's, it's downright ugly for them any which way you look at it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> so, Pastor Preuss, then, you, you've, you've made the connection that the Midianites, the Amalekites, they're compared to li- locusts, excuse me, uh, in, in number, and that is a connection to the, the people, what happened to them in Egypt, the plagues that the Lord sent, and now how, because they've fallen into what the same idolatry that the Egyptians would have been worshiping, now that those plagues are coming against them. I, I guess when, when, I, when I think about that, how do we do we see things like that happening in the church today, or, or can we not say that? Uh, I think I think so, and I think we can say that. I, I know people are really they're really careful uh, and cautious when we say things like this. I know that whenever you say that, you know, some great tragic event uh, is punishment from God, it gets people upset, and and I do think you have to be careful because. Uh, there are false prophets who try to make these grand prophecies, and they're trying to get into the mind of God. Uh, and one one passage I always bring up, especially with this whole uh, coronavirus um, thing going on, when people ask, like, you know, is God trying to tell us something? 
what you look at Jesus' words in, uh, uh, when he says, you know, do you think that those uh, who, who, when they asked Jesus about the, the Galileans whose blood was mixed with, with the, the sacrifice from Pilate, and then uh, were they greater sinners? And Jesus says, well, no, but less, unless you likewise repent, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And he gives the example of those uh, who died from the tower falling on them. He says, do you think they were worse sinners? No, but I tell you, unless you likewise repent, uh, you will likewise perish. Mm. So I do think that um, whenever we have disasters uh, come upon us, that we our response should always be to repent of our sins, to examine our, our ourselves according to the Word of God, mm. because how God speaks to us is always through Scripture. Uh, I mean, he speaks to us outside of Scripture, um, but not independent of it. And what I mean by that is... I mean, he doesn't preach the gospel outside of Scripture, but I do think that he does preach the law, right? Um, you know, a boy who goes and breaks into someone's house and tries to steal uh, some some stuff, and then he gets shot and killed, um, even though nobody, you know, preached to him. You know, that that's the law, right? Uh, and so you do see things like that, um, but when if you want the gospel, you always have to turn to God's revealed word, uh, which comes from Scripture, which is preached uh, by pastors, uh, and uh, you're not going to have the gospel come to you. Uh, you're not going to have some special revelation that's going to come to you. But I do think I do think the Church needs to be aware of this today. Um, when we, uh, and again, you always have to be cautious, but I mean, the Church does seem to be in pretty, to be in tatters uh, uh, in America. And this, I think, is because we've, in large part, turned away from the Word of God. Now, granted, I mean, we could be faithful and still be small. So I'm not saying that, you know, if we just follow these quick steps, uh, the Church will, will be growing. Uh, but all of the—what well, I am saying is that all of the problems that we see in the Church at large, not just in Missouri Synod, but the Church at large, is because of sinners— turning away from God's Word, mm. not listening to God and following the wisdom of man, mm. not trusting in the promises that God gives. And uh, I think that that is our, is always our, our biggest problem. Mm. Uh, when you look at these, whether it's the other denominations that have accepted higher criticism of, of the Bible and don't think that it, and think that there are errors in the Bible, and they bring in uh, philosophies of man, uh, or whether it's in our own church body uh, with cowardice and with uh, following non-Lutheran, non-biblical practices. Uh, all of these have negative consequences that I think we can see. Mm. And, uh, and it, it, the, the solution is always to turn to God's Word, which is what we see in this, in this lesson. It's exactly what we see. Uh, Gideon has, knows half the story. He said, I thought, God said, this is the story that I heard, and it's very much kind of like, like uh, some uh, uh, Christian today, some you know, teenage girl saying, but I was told that Jesus loves us. What, why am I suffering? Why is my life such a mess? I was told that Jesus loves us, and as long as I love Jesus, everything would be okay. And it's like, okay, well, here, sit down, and let's learn a little bit more about what Jesus actually teaches. 
And I think that's what happened to Gideon. I think, uh, and, and all these Israelites, I think they were taught gospel reductionism. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they, they suffered for it. Well, I, we do know, I mean, in, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, that after Joshua's generation dies, that another generation arises. And, and the way that they're described is that they didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the work that he'd done for Israel. And, and throughout the book of Judges, it seems that you've got one generation after another in that same vein that simply doesn't know or doesn't know the whole story. As you said, Gideon does seem to know some of the story. You've got this you got this prophet that shows up, an unnamed prophet that shows up in verses 7 through 10 and does speak a word from the Lord. Deborah was a prophetess previously, and, and she speaks the word of the Lord. That seems a bit a bit rare. I think it's it's in, you said you were reading from 1 Samuel. It's in 1 Samuel 3, where it says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and it, it seems that it's relatively rare here in in this day too but it's not completely gone they don't they don't know everything they don't know it well and they do need the lord to to speak to them to to reveal to them uh, just briefly pastor price this this prophet that shows up here in verses 7 through 10 this is a, a bit seems a bit unique in the in the book of judges not completely what what do you make of of this prophet and what he says well, I think it's interesting that he's not named, uh, and but he, he points them to the law. I mean, mm-hmm. we, you mentioned the, the word of the Lord is rare, and that was true. Uh, it got rarer, I think, until Samuel comes. But they did have the scriptures, and if you read Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. I mean, this is them writing down the final parts. I mean, we have the five books of Moses. Um, you, you, you have the tabernacle. You have the priest. So he, he shows up. And then he just simply tells them, in the briefest way, the history that the, of the law. That, you know, uh, I led you out of Egypt. That's the Lord God. And uh, I told you not to fear the Amorites. Uh, so it's a, there, there's definitely a law, but there is, also, there is also a hint of gospel there. When he says, I am the Lord your God, you, uh, who led you out of Egypt... Who delivered you out, uh, out of the hand of Egypt, and I told you not to fear the God of the Amorites and those who dwell in you. But you have not obeyed my voice. Uh, the gospel is that he is the Lord who delivered them out of Egypt. And do not fear all these other false gods. You already have a God. So the solution is to turn to the Lord. Trust in him. Hmm. And so he's going to call them back to himself, and he's going to do that through Gideon. And so I'm going to I'm going to read a little bit more. We're, we've got a couple of minutes here on this side of the break, so I won't read everything. But we're in Judges six, beginning now at verse eleven again. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of the Midian of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? 
And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I think I'll I'll pause there after verse 16, Pastor Price. We've got just about two minutes here on this side of the break. So rather than than getting into a ton of theology, because there's plenty here, just on, on this side, Paint the picture for us. You've you've got Gideon. He says it's it says he's beating out the wheat in the wine press. What exactly is he doing, and why is he doing it this way? Yeah, it's a it's a great picture that shows the, the situation that all of Israel is in. You don't beat uh, wheat in a wine press. You you beat it in a threshing floor. But if you do that, then you're going to be seen from far away because you know you're lifting up these great big stalks and beating them down so that the grain falls out on, on the threshing floor. But uh, a wine vat is going to be dug into the earth, so it's going to be lower down. So he's threshing wheat in a wine uh, uh, vat or a wine press so that he can be hidden from the Midianites. So it's a, it's a perfect scene that shows the oppression that Israel is suffering under, and it also shows Gideon's personal... Uh, cowardice. Mm. So it's a very uh, funny thing that the, 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 the words that the angel of the Lord speaks are in contrast, stark contrast, to what you see. Mm. Uh, so the, the, the angel of the Lord speaks a reality that is contrary to what you see. And then, of course, what we do see is it becomes the reality. He speaks it, and, and so it is. Uh, but yeah, that's what I see with him beating, beating the uh, the wheat in the wine press. It's mm-hmm. a it's a comical scene that shows exactly what Israel is suffering. Right, and and into this scene of cowardice and fear, the Lord will speak His creative word, which we will pick up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 15th, and we are studying Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 24 with Pastor James Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Price, prior to the break, I went ahead, we went ahead and read verses 11 through 16 of the text, and we were setting the scene. It's, it's rather comical that Gideon is down in a wine pressed. He's threshing wheat for fear of the Midianites into this cowardice, into this fear. It is the Lord who speaks, or at least that's the way we've been saying. The text in verse 11 says, it was the angel of the Lord who came and spoke and sat and did all these things. So 
well, who who is this actually that is talking to Gideon? Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. He says, the angel of the Lord, and then he switches. So in verse 14, uh, it switches from the angel of the Lord and says, and the Lord turned to him and said, uh, and you, you also have that example in verse 16, where he says, and the Lord said to him. So uh, without saying that there are two people there, it doesn't say that the, the Lord and the angel of the Lord came and spoke to him. It just has the angel of the Lord came and spoke to Gideon. And then it switches to, and then the Lord said. Uh, and this is actually very consistent with not just all of Judges, but all of the Old Testament. Uh, some people think that the, the teaching of the Trinity is just the teaching of the, of the New Testament, or even some think that this is an invention of the early Christian church. But in fact, the Trinity is taught from the very first verses of the Bible, where you have in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and the uh, Spirit of, of God was hovering over the, the face of the deep, and God said, and there you have you know, God the Father, you have God the Spirit, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, and you have God the Son, who is the Word. Uh, and this is consistent through, throughout. So if you remember the story of Moses and the, the burning bush, you have the angel of the Lord speaks out of this burning bush, and then later it's the Lord who is talking to him. Uh, and you, you have examples of that in the book of Joshua, where Joshua meets the commander of the, of the armies of the Lord. And this is an example of the second person in, in the Trinity. Uh, so throughout, uh, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, you have examples of the Lord speaking, and yet there's more than just one person. So obviously there's only one God. Deuteronomy 6 uh, makes it very clear, um, among other places, uh, where he says, Here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, so we have, there's only one God. And yet there are multiple persons within the Godhead. So the angel of the Lord is one of those common names within the Old Testament, especially in Judges, that is given for the second person in the Holy Trinity. So we know of the second person in the Holy Trinity as the Son of God, or uh, as, his, as his human name is, Jesus, Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. But he's not always called the Son. Sometimes he's called the Word, in Greek, the Logos. Uh, sometimes, uh, like I mentioned earlier in Joshua, he is called the commander of the armies of the Lord, uh, and, uh, and the angel of the Lord is a, is a common name. So different names for the same person. And he is clearly distinct from God because he is an angel. So an angel means messenger. Uh, well, what does a messenger do? Oh, well, a messenger speaks, which is why you can kind of see why John in uh, John's Gospel, uh, in the first chapter, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, it's a, kind of a variation of, of, of angel. Angel is a messenger. Messengers speak a word. Uh, so he's the incarnate, he becomes the incarnate Word. So he's distinct, because he is not simply the Lord, he is the angel of the Lord. And yet, he is the Lord. So uh, this is, it, it, it's, it's something that you, I don't think you can understand unless you know the gospel uh, and you, you're taught the, the creeds. Um, the, the teaching of the Holy Trinity isn't taught 
the way it's taught in the creeds uh, in Scripture so concisely. There are very few places where you have that. I mean, you have Matthew 28 uh, at the end where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you read St. Paul's epistles, he'll have that in there where, you know, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love God and the community of the Holy Spirit be with you always. So you'll have, he has sayings like that. Uh, and if you read through you know, Romans or read through uh, Ephesians, you see, you know, the Trinitarian language all over the place. Uh, but in the Old Testament, it's there, but it's a little bit more subtle. And the way I would explain it, 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 the Trinity is revealed kind of the way parents reveal themselves to their children. So I have four four children, and I don't think to any of them did I ever like go up and you know extend my hand and say, "Hi, I am your daddy. You are my child, and uh, this is your mother. You have half of my DNA, and you have half of her DNA, and you live in our house, and you have to obey us." Uh, I mean. <laughs> We didn't have any conversation like that, but obviously, you know, all of my children know that. They, uh, I mean, maybe not the DNA, they don't quite understand that, but I mean, they, they do know that they're related to me uh, in a way that they don't, they don't understand. Uh, but because we live with each other every day, and we interact with each other, and that's how God is in the Old Testament, uh, as far as his nature and, and, and the Godhead. So they know that the angel of the Lord is God. We hear Gideon say this later on, which is, oh, uh, in verse 22, Alas, O Lord, from now on, for, for, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And he's afraid. He thinks he's going to die because he's seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Well, you don't die because you see an angel. Uh, you, you die because you see God. So you, you have them recognizing that God has multiple persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet he is still one God. Uh, and uh, so we do, when we say we worship the triune God, we are saying that we worship the God of the Old Testament, and that he is revealed not in the dogmatic way that usually makes us more comfortable, uh, where it's just that, you know, A, B, C, but rather much more the way parents reveal themselves to their children, uh, and they, they get to know them gradually. Uh, through multiple interactions. Mm. And so here the the Son, the Son of God, comes and interacts with Gideon as the angel of the Lord, right? I mean, very, very well said, Pastor Preuss. And, and then you get this, it seems to be a bit of a contrast or a bit of surprise, because on the one hand, you've got fearful Gideon down in a wine press doing his best to thresh the wheat, as difficult as that would have been, because he's afraid. And here comes the Lord, who says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And if, if you or I were looking at Gideon, we probably would not have seen a mighty man of valor. How is it that the Son of God says to Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor? Yeah, it's, well, it's hilarious. Like what I said before, he looks like a coward. And this is something we have to understand about the gospel. A lot of people think that you become a Christian when you become what your faith believes. So we believe we are righteous through faith. Well, how can you believe that if it's not so? So you can't, before you can believe that you're righteous, you must now become righteous. So you must do it yourself. Well, so what you end up doing is you throw Jesus and his cross and crucifixion and, and obedience out 
the window and you start pursuing your salvation yourself. And of course, you can never achieve it. The gospel is an objective truth. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins. He was obedient in our stead, and he gives that obedience to us. He gives us his righteousness as a gift. Uh, So that's what it means if you've heard the term objective justification and subjective justification. They, They seem like technical terms, but they're very, very helpful. So objective is in contrast to relative. Objective, it's true. So someone might say, this is an objective fact. George Washington is the, fir- is the first president of the United States, right? Uh, the objective truth is that you are justified, because the whole world is justified. Christ, uh, you know, uh, Christ Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He died for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Um, you know, uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Well, to be reconciled means to be justified. The only way you can be justified, uh, the only way you can be reconciled is to be declared righteous. So, uh, the angel of the Lord, Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, says to Gideon that he is a man of valor. Uh, well, what does it mean to be a man of valor? Well, we think of courage and all, all that goes with it. Well, it means to to be clothed with Christ, mm. to be clothed in God's righteousness, and to have the confidence to stand before God's enemies because you know that you are covered in uh, in Christ. And obviously, this isn't a this isn't a reality that you can see with your eyes. It can only be received through faith. But the thing is, faith can't receive something. That's not true. Otherwise, it's a false faith. So this, that's what subjective justification is. Subjective justification means that it's personal. It's a personal justification. So I am personally justified because I have faith that God has declared me righteous. So to be justified means to be declared righteous. So I believe in the truth of the objective justification. I believe that God is not at enmity with me, that God is not angry with me on account of Christ. Just like the fourth uh, article of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, Our churches also teach that men are not justified before God by their own strength, merit, or works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven uh, on account of Christ, uh, who by his death made satisfaction for our sins. So when are they justified? When they believe that they are justified. Well, how can that be? Well, because they are justified. God has done it. Uh, so uh, p- this gets people really upset because they'll say, well, you can't be justified without faith. Well, true, yeah, you can't be justified without faith, but you also can't be justified through faith unless you're already justified. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, it's whether it's personal or whether it is uh, objective. It's, it's whether it has been received or whether it's being offered. Uh, God has declared us righteous. Don't call God a liar. And when you believe that, you have received this personally. Mm-hmm. God, does, uh, the angel of the Lord doesn't say to Gideon, I'm going to make you into a man of valor. He says, you are a man of valor. 
And then he works through the preaching of the word, through the teaching of, of, of worship, to convince Gideon of this fact that God has made true before it has actually uh, been realized by mm-hmm. Gideon. Hmm. Right, it, it's been made true before it starts to to show itself in Gideon's life. Right, I mean, because he doesn't he doesn't really start acting like a man of valor. Well, I I don't know where he starts acting like a man of valor. Maybe it's not till somewhere in chapter seven. He's he's gonna. Yeah, I don't know if I. <laughs> I don't know if I even get to discuss that one. <laughs> no, yeah, well, I mean, but but I mean, but I think that, but the point that you're you're making is that even before you start to, as a, as an observer from the outside, like you and I reading this text right now, at this moment we would not call him a man of valor, and you don't start to see it until some point after today's text. But he is that because of what the Lord has said at this moment, even if you haven't fully seen it yet. I mean, that, that's what we're saying, right? Yeah, well, it's like a, a man, um, a man uh, uh, gets drunk, and then he goes, you know, the very next day, and confesses his sin. And his pastor says, "You, you are forgiven." And then the man says, "Okay," uh, and then he goes, you know, a month without drinking, and he feels guilty until maybe like three weeks in, he starts feeling, "Hey, you know what?" I am not a drunk. I am, I am a righteous person. And then he falls off the wagon, and uh, or on the wagon. I can't remember uh, how that idiom goes. And uh, and he he gets drunk again, and he feels terrible. He's like I had just you know gotten to the point where I, I had just become not. I had just become a good person, a righteous person. Well, when was he actually righteous? He was righteous when he received the, the forgiveness through faith, not when he then. Uh, started bettering himself. Uh, so he thinks that, I mean, there, there's a difference between the, the being justified and being, and being sanctified, and this is something that we Christians struggle with. Uh, I think that I'm getting better and that I am becoming more righteous because of the outward expression of my faith, because of uh, I'm, you know, the Holy Spirit actually does work within me. But when are you actually righteous in God's sight? It's when he says, I forgive you. And this is be, before uh, the fruits are, are born. Now, I mean, the fruits are born, I guess, it's, it's, it's simultaneously. Hmm. But uh, it has to be before that you receive the, the righteousness and you receive the forgiveness and salvation. Because as Jesus says, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So uh, the angel of the Lord has to make him a man of valor before he can perform valiantly. And uh, you need to be made righteous before you can do righteous things. And this is a hard thing for sinners to accept, because when you feel guilty for the wickedness that you have done, uh, when you have said things that you should not have said, and uh, when you have lived as if you were part of this disgusting, God-hating world, and, uh, and then you confess your sins, uh, say a penitential psalm, and you believe in the forgiveness, but you don't owe, I mean, being a Christian isn't just immediately feeling the joy in your heart. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that I think about with Psalm 51, you know, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. When did, uh, when did David write this? 
Well, this it was after he had already been told by Nathan that the Lord had put his sin behind him. He'd already been forgiven, and yet here he is praying to God to uh, to give him joy again. Well, the joy sometimes doesn't come right away, but that doesn't mean that you're not forgiven. It doesn't mean that you're not righteous. The courage doesn't come right away, but that doesn't mean that God hasn't made you valiant uh, in, in the Lord. So Gideon is declared valiant, he's declared righteous, and it comes later in great weakness. He doesn't do it perfectly. He never reaches that in this life. But in God's sight, he, when did he reach it? Well, when the angel of the Lord told him, because mm. God doesn't lie. Mm. And, and I think you said, Pastor Price, that the part of this is the act of worship, then, that comes into play. What, what happens? This is how the Lord is going to help Gideon receive this gift in faith through this act of worship. So let's pick up in the text. We left off with verse 17. This is Judges six seventeen, And he, that is Gideon, said to him, to the angel of the Lord, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophra, which belongs to the Abiezrites. And that's the end of today's text. That was Judges 6, verses 17 through 24. So Pastor Price, we've got about nine minutes here on the morning. Take us through this, this scene of the worship that the angel of the Lord leads Gideon in. Yeah, uh, this is this very much connects to my point before that the people of Israel had forgotten what Moses had taught them. They hadn't been participating in the worship that they should have been participating in. Uh, it was very structured. Uh, I, I really encourage every Christian to read through the book of Leviticus and read through it uh, more than once. It, it might seem boring at some times because it seems so technical, but it really gives you an understanding of what their worship was about and how the people of Israel learned the Word of God and how they interacted with God and how they received comfort. How did, if you are an Israelite in the Old Testament, how do you know whether God is pleased with you or not? How do you know whether God loves you, whether he's going to grant you success? And it, is, it revolves around the sacrifices. Now, we all know that the sacrifices of the Old Testament are all are types of Christ. They all prophesy of Jesus Christ. I mean, a great way to do that, a wonderful exercise, is to read a Leviticus and then read the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews uh, teaches you what Leviticus means. 
But if you read the book of Hebrews, that's where he says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. But then at the same time, he says, you know, without the, the, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then he talks about Jesus coming and being the, the one sacrificed once and for all. I mean, he's the better everything, and he, he, fulfills, he fulfills all these sacrifices. So it's good for you to recognize that every sacrifice points to Christ Jesus, who is the one sacrifice who ends all sacrifices. But it's not that simple. There's more to it. And uh, one big thing is, is the preaching of the Word. So with every sacrifice, you have the smoke ascends. Now, what do you think about when you see the smoke ascending? One thing you think about is the pillar of smoke, the pillar, pillar of cloud by day that, uh, uh, that went with Israel and was with them. the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that was with Israel and let them know that, that the God of Israel was with them, the God who gave them salvation and, and success, who protected them. But also, you have God talking about this pleasant aroma. So when you burn this fat on the altar, or grain, or incense oil, whatever it is that you are, you're pouring on there, and there, there are multiple different types of, of sacrifices, but when that fat is burning and sizzling, and that black smoke is coming up, and you smell it, you're told to believe that God is pleased with you. This is acceptance. So uh, this is why they go. Not only the sacrifices that are required of them each day, and every morning and evening they have you know, the, the designated morning and evening sacrifices that people would go and smell and see, uh, but also you would have your free will offerings. Uh, like I mentioned before with, with uh, Jephthah, uh, there there were sacrifices that he could have offered. He could have gone to the Levite, and the Levite would have told him, well, okay, you need a male goat, and you need it for a sin offering, and you need a, uh, you should offer, you know, such and such for a bull offering, you should bring it through shekels uh, for, for, you know, a, 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 for, for a redemption offering. You know, and there were ways that they could have told him how to deal with these situations. Uh, it, and, and this is, it, one, one example is in Proverbs 14.9, he talks about the importance to this, to the faith of the people of Israel. Uh, fools mock the, the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. So what am I saying with all this? What is the offering with the smoke coming up? What does that tell you? It tells you the gospel. What, is it, what does it point to in the New Testament? It's not just simply that Jesus dies on the cross, which obviously, I mean, I don't want to have the word simply in there as if it's a small thing, but it's the preaching of the gospel. What has replaced it? It's the preaching of the gospel. Uh, our preaching in our pulpit on Sunday morning should be like the, the smoke ascending from the offerings, letting everyone know that they have acceptance from God, that God has accepted them and he's, they're at peace with them. So you have Gideon. I mean, it, it seems like he doesn't quite understand who he's talking to. because It's the angel of the Lord, and yet he brings him a meal. And the angel of the Lord is very patient with them. He says, okay, well, this is what you're going to do. Put it on a rock, put it on a rock, and, and then he consumes it as if he had just offered a, uh, a free will offering uh, to the Lord. And then he realizes, that's when he falls on his face, and he realizes, oh, wow, uh, the, I, I just saw the angel of the Lord face to face. And and then it's it's at that moment then where the gospel just becomes very fully realized for Gideon where He's afraid he's going to die, but we see those those wonderful words from the Lord, peace 
be to you. There's the the full circle of the gospel that it brings the peace of God knowing, as, as you said, there's the acceptance. So you're not an enemy of God anymore. You have peace with him. We got about three minutes, Pastor Bryce. Yeah, and that's a huge, I mean, you probably remember that the passage from Romans, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, it's Romans 5.1, uh, and uh, that's the only way that you can have peace, is through the gospel. So we, we talked at the beginning, why are they being oppressed? Why are, they, why are the people of Israel suffering so much? Well, it's because they forsook the, the, the Lord, they forgot the law. So this is law. You forsake God, he's going to punish you. And this is why, like I said, uh, you know, when you're suffering, when we're being hit by, by things that we don't understand in this world, what should we do? Well, the first thing you should do is repent of your sins. Examine yourself, repent of your sins. But that's not going to make it better. It's by simply just saying, I'm sorry, and simply by, you know, acknowledging that you're a sinner. It's always the gospel that uh, is going to cheer your heart and give you confidence that you're accepted by God. The only thing that can give you peace with God is the forgiveness of sins and acceptance from God. And this comes from the gospel. The gospel that God uh, is at peace with you for the sake of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that is what strengthens Gideon, too. Gideon is strengthened and becomes this great leader that brings deliverance to the people of Israel because God strengthened him with the gospel. And he gave him peace. And this is what pastors need to remember. Uh, I mean, it, it, it might seem tempting to just say, uh, to, to, to focus on the law, to you know, ball out the people because they're not being good Christians, and maybe this will snap them into to shape, and maybe it will. But that's not how you make Christians. This is not how you strengthen the flock by just simply giving them rules and, and telling them how, how bad Christians they are. You strengthen the flock through the gospel. Now, obviously, you need the law first uh, to bring people to repentance, but you need the gospel. Otherwise, they're just simply going to be beaten over, and uh, they, they won't know God's peace. They need to hear that God accepts them for Christ's sake. And that is was the mission of the angel of the Lord in this text, uh, and that is always the mission of the Church, to bring God's peace, which is one through Jesus Christ, uh, and uh, that is what gives us true righteousness, and that's what makes us valiant, and that's what strengthens us uh, to do battle against the sinful world that, that hates God and hates the gospel. Pastor James Preuss is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Into the fear and cowardice of Gideon, threshing wheat in a wine press, the angel of the Lord speaks his truth, and that truth is reality. And so Gideon has the peace of the gospel, the same peace that you and I have, that we are justified for the sake of Christ, received through faith. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <music>